This is The Deal with Nisane Black. Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome back to The Deal with Nisane Black, a.k.a. God's Man, a.k.a. Hitler's Worst Nightmare, a.k.a. Sammy Davis' cousin, a.k.a. Yehuda Blackaby. Coleman Hughes is a writer, a podcaster, and an opinion columnist who specializes in issues related to race, public policy, and applied ethics. Coleman's writings have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, National Review, the City Journal, and the Spectator. Hey, Coleman, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, uh, it's such an honor to have you here on The Deal, man. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. No, pleasure's all mine. Pleasure's all mine. So let's let's get into this really, really quickly. Um, I, I have to ask you about this video because the video is fire. The video is fire. Um, blasphemy. I mean, like, quite honestly, I got I, I got a whole lot, lot of questions I got to ask you off camera about this video anyway. But <laughs> first off, I want to ask you, like, what inspired you to do this? I mean, there's obvious things that you talk about that inspired you to do it, but there could have been many other platforms as you're familiar with but what made you want to do it in a music video well i it was 2019 when i first started the song and i had just testified before congress and i was feeling the heat of a lot of people that didn't like my opinion in the room online and there was a kind of resentment of feeling like people were not taking my opinion in good faith or or seriously mm -hmm. and engaging with it and there was a kind of frustration that i just felt i had to channel and that was really the, the feeling that sparked the song. So I made that beat and then it just, the lyrics just kind of came. You know, it's very interesting. They say artists usually, when they're going through something, makes the best music. Would you, would you mm -hmm. agree that, you know, had it not happened, you don't think you would have been able to pull off a record like this? I think you, you, you often have to have strong emotions about something. Where, the, where those emotions come from is less important. But yeah, I mean, it has to be a strong emotion that, is the genesis of a moving piece of artwork. Mm -hmm. Right. So you are, let me get this straight, you are black and you're also white. You're mixed. Is that is that what you, I, I think I caught that line inside the inside the song, right? Yeah, that's a that's more of a metaphorical line in the song. I mean, okay. eth ethnically, I, I would, one would probably call me half black, half ethnically Puerto Rican. My mom was Puerto Rican. My dad is black. Okay, okay, got it. But you know, on my Port on my Puerto Rican side, I'm I'm also racially mixed. So like my grandma is like white Puerto Rican. My other grandma was black Puerto Rican. So even that is like you know, I I do think at the end of the day, almost every black person in America has some quote unquote white in them genetically. For sure, that's true. And and a lot of white people don't know they have black in them. So it's kind of more metaphorical. No, it's true. I mean, even if you look at the African-American population or how many people have Native American in them also, too. Everybody's like, it's always been a thing for me. Anybody that's black by the definition of meaning that descendant of, you know, um, slave slavery in America. And I'm going to say most of the people that came over, but even a lot of them even, are not 100% African genes. You understand mm -hmm. what I mean? It's not. So this whole extra super pro-black, black everything, and you're talking about the color of your skin, but ethnically, you, a lot of people have a lot of other, you know, ethnic groups, you know, mixed into the to the gene pool. Right. So I want to ask you about this record. So you said a few things. I want to quote a couple of these lines that you, that you had. So you said, look at my attitude after they called me a Tom, 
and a ray called me a coon, it's a 10. Mm-hmm. You said, well, you did, you said something else, it's a 10. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I, keep, I keep it clean. I mean, explain some of these bars to me. I'm saying, don't tell me who to offend, losing a few of my friends. Yeah, I've been booted from public events, and it was almost, uh, and it was over something I said. Talk to me about some of these things. I'm just excited to hear about it. I had Officer Tatum earlier on on the show, and we discussed a few of these things, but I'm really, like, interested to pick your brain on this. Well, yeah, so the choice for me as a public figure, as a writer, has been to think for myself and to think what I actually think and risk being called names by people, being called an Uncle Tom, being called a coon sometimes. And the choices between that and just shutting up thinking what I'm supposed to think, not really thinking for myself, and basically people-pleasing, catering to the people that wield those kind of epithets as a way of policing the boundaries of thought. So I've always chosen the first route, and that's basically what that's about. It's like I'm, I'm not going to stop thinking for myself because someone is calling me a name. I mean, that. I think, unfortunately, those kind of slurs do work on a lot of people, that limit themselves in what they'll think so so as to never cross boundaries that will get them called names by other black people. That's just not the, the way to be an autonomous, uh, self-driven individual. Right. Of course, it's not. I, I mean, there's a few different things, you know. I've struggled with a lot of these things myself. If I grew up in the hood, I was very, very um, familiar with what that relationship was like, specifically you know, dealing with a few of the things you, you know, you were talking about in this record and things that just been going on, specifically that relationship between the police and me being a black man, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, in the hood, growing up. And, and I always tell people, like, I was way more worried about the other guys I was beefing with than I was with the police. You know, I just didn't grow up with a crazy fear. My fear of the police is I didn't want to go to jail. But I didn't grow up ever thinking, like, you know what I'm saying, the police are going to shoot me. I know some people could argue that we're living in different times, but I think we're just living, you know what I'm saying, with different uh, different people on the news, to be honest. I think, you know, it's been very, very hard to be able to have these tough conversations because there's so much noise. And you being a person that's a writer, you understand the power of, you know, putting articles out and different things like that. How strong do you think that the influence has been from the media in terms of uh, being able to sway people in the black community on this issue in particular? That's a great question. And I, I think the media, one of the primary powers the media has, probably the most important power, is not necessarily how they tell you something. It's what they show and what they don't show. And I'm talking about national news. I'm talking about CNN, MSNBC, Fox, the national news, which is now what everyone watches. It used to be people were more into local news, but more and more it's become national. And what happens is every day in this country, like a billion different things happen. Crazy things happen in different towns and cities all across America. And the national news picks and choose, chooses you know, two or three to report. And the primary power they have to shape our picture of what's going on in our country is to choose certain things and to not choose others. So, for example, obviously, the killing of George Floyd was a huge story, as it should have been. But three years before that, Tony Timpa, who was a white man in Dallas that was killed 
in in a very similar way to George Floyd on camera, a knee on the back of his neck for 13 minutes and the cops making jokes as they killed him, right? That just wasn't a big news story. So basically what happens is you show all the examples of, of things happen to black people. You show none of the examples of them happening to white people. And then people form the impression that, oh, this kind of thing only ever happens to black people because of what they're being shown and what they're not being shown. And that's the primary power to shape shape the narrative. And it's I don't even think a lot of people in the news are doing that consciously or they uh, they know what they're doing. But um, that that has a real power to skew people's perceptions about what's true. That's a great answer. You know what? I I myself, you know, it's very hard for me because when I'm having these conversations, even with people that I grew up with or different things like that, like the truth is, is that nobody ever really thought it out. You understand what I'm saying? Nobody ever really thought about it themselves. You know, I mean, I remember being a kid and there would be these group of five percenter guys, you know what I'm saying? And I think they were, they, you know, obviously meant well. So they would take us out of the class and they will pump us basically with their ideologies of, of how important it was as a black man to know that you're God and whatever the case is. But it was like, you know, all these things happening to people, you know, whether it's from the media, whether it's from, you know, these type of groups or whether it's from what's happening in entertainment and our culture, it's really programming a person to think and, and not to think about things that are actual life experiences. In other words, like, you know, I was put on the spot after the George Floyd thing. And somebody was just like, you know, what's it like being black growing up, you know, in your, in your neighborhood? Like, did you experience racism? What was that like? How did that feel? And I'm going to be, you know, I have to be honest with people. Like, I didn't. But it had had, a, had it not been framed to me that way, you understand what I mean? I would have never, I would have just been like, yeah, it's hard out here. Uh, you know what I'm saying? People are racist and all that. Because that's what I've been fed. You understand what I mean? But when I think about myself, how many times did I actually experience those things? I grew up in Seattle. Seattle happens to be very, very liberal, very, very politically correct. There could be a lot of systemic things that are wrong, but to say that I actually was experiencing racism or the police did this and whatever, yeah, they, I, the times I got jacked up by the police, it's like, you know, I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing. I looked like I wasn't doing something I should have been doing. So I guess my question is to you, are you seeing the same thing, you know, for yourself also to that? A lot of people's opinions, they don't even own those opinions. They're not really theirs. They really belong to what they've been taught from other people. So what you're talking about has a name. Uh, it's been given a name by certain thinkers called the optimism gap, which is you ask someone the same question in two different ways and they will give you two different answers. So if you ask someone how much racism there is in, in the U.S., they will tell you a lot. There's a whole lot of racism. How much crime is there in the U.S.? There's a lot you know, whatever it is. If you ask them, how much racism is there in your neighborhood? How much crime is there in your specific, on your block? The more concrete you make it so that they're actually thinking about their day-to-day -day experience, the more people will say, well, actually, it's not as bad. It's not as bad. Right. So, you know, like if you ask everyone, ha have people been making economic progress the past 50 years? You'll get a lot of people saying, no, we're just as poor as we ever were. You ask people, are you doing better than your parents? Most people will say, well, actually, yeah, I am doing better than my parents. So then how could it be true that nobody's doing better, that we haven't made progress if almost everyone is saying I'm doing better than my parents, right? So the more concrete you make it, the more you get people to actually think about their own lives rather than these big narratives about the country that are influenced by the media, 
the more optimistic people are about the future and about how much progress has been made. Wow, that's crazy. It's funny because, you know, not to get in, I don't care if you're for or not, I have to make that disclaimer just because I know that, the you know, whatever algorithms and whoever's watching or whatever, not saying pro, not saying against, but the vaccine was a major issue this, this past year, right? So I seen a video somebody sent me of someone going around on college campuses and they were asking uh, all these girls, how do you feel about, you know, my body, my choice? Everybody obviously agreed. They agreed that it's okay to, you know, abort the, the child and, and whatever else because it's their body, their choice, right? So, and asked several different girls. And finally, after they were done asking, you know, a certain amount of girls, she went back and asked all these same girls, how do you feel about a vaccine mandate? Oh, no, I'm definitely for it. I'm definitely for it. I'm definitely for it. 100%, you know, for it. And then the question is, well, what does that do with my body, my choice? And everybody's stumped. Oh, I didn't I didn't think about that. You know, almost, mm-hmm. I almost didn't think about it. So it seems like even in the midst of all of this, sometimes, you know, it's just like, you know, I mean, I found that to be very, very hilarious. But I think it's sometimes it's just one of those things where, you know, I think, People need to spend a little bit more time alone, away from the rest of the world. Like, And for me, that's how I'm able to formulate my opinions. I take time. I go spend like, you know, an hour every day just talking to God, trying to formulate what my life is and, and what I'm supposed to be doing and why, why I was put here, you know? Do you have any practices or anything like that that help you to stay focused on what your path? Because you could be indoctrinated also too on the right, also too, right? Whether the person's right or they're left on the political spectrum, you can hold and, and own opinions that don't really belong to you but that's a, as, as an individual. So my question is for you, how do you keep your opinions your own? Mm, that That's a really good question. I mean, meditation helps. I'm a big meditator. And I guess the way that helps is to make me a little bit better at not trusting my first reaction to everything. So if I read something and I feel in my body, I just, I think it's bullshit. I don't always trust that. I think, okay, wait a minute. I'm, I'm being too reactive to this. This is the kind of thing that's going to lead me to just confirm what I already believe. So let me actually give this a chance. Let me give this as much of a chance as I can and see see if there's anything uh, to be gleaned here because I know that. So I'm, I'm doing that a lot when I'm reading things that I don't like. I try to expose myself to things that I, I wouldn't normally expose myself to. And I think that helps me not get too deep down any rabbit holes that are uh, misleading or, or wrong. And I try to also really detach my own, I try as much as I can to detach my ego and identity from what I believe, right? Because the moment I say it's a core part of my identity that I believe X, Y, and Z, that's the moment that I'm going to start believing things that aren't true because I'm trying to protect my identity. So I try to remain as flexible as possible, as open to new facts and new information and new paradigms, Um, not wedded to any one particular ideology, because I think pretty much every ideology gets something right and something wrong and hardly perfect. But I try my best. Right. So let's get back to the music a little bit since uh, we play in a similar arena there. So I want to know what what drove you to start producing and to start writing, uh, writing songs? Well, I've been... I've been obsessed with music since I was like 12 years old. It's, it's my first passion, really. And wow. it's, um, you know, like, why does, why does anyone get into music? It's, it's like, you know, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's sort of self-explanatory at that level. But getting into hip hop, 
I didn't really get too deep into producing and writing bars and that kind of thing until I was 18. And it was partly around the time my mom was sick and, and eventually passed away. And I was really using hip hop to cope with that loss a lot. How old were you? How old were you when you lost your mother? 18. 18. Oh, mm -hmm. wow, wow. Yeah. I was 19 when I lost my mother. Mm, sorry to hear that. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah. But I think, you know, the we were talking earlier about how powerful emotions are usually the genesis of art. So that was a huge, formative, powerful experience for me that was the genesis of my interest in in like really writing full songs. And so I dealt with a lot of the emotions through that. And ever since then, I've been I've been producing and and rapping and trying to sing a little bit sometimes, you know. Yeah, once you start one thing, you know, it leads to another, you know. <laughs> it does. Um, so, like, music is obviously the most powerful thing. So, usually, there is always some type of influence that, that sparks that. Who, you, who would you say were your musical influences? I want to ask you this question because, you know, I, I think a lot of people have had to deal with this, and particularly in your type of position and holding the views that you do. And even me, I would say even becoming more of a religious person over the years, right? So my musical influences versus the fact that I probably disagree with them at, at a political standpoint, but disagree with them as an individual, but like, they're still dope. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, so like, mm -hmm. I want to know if like you have to deal with that dichotomy also. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've always found I can listen to music by people that disagree with my politics a lot. You know, like I, I can actually listen to music by people who I think have really wrong and kind of hateful views. And if it's good music, it still it still touches me. The humanity of it can still touch me 100 percent. I mean, as far as influences, I have so many. But, you know, as far as rappers go to narrow it down, I mean, I love Tyler, the creator, Earl Sweatshirt. I love Kanye, Eminem, MF Doom, Kendrick Lamar, Childish Gambino, Chance the earlier Chance the Rapper. You like rappers. You like real rappers. J, J Electronica. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good place to start. Right. I mean, I would say Kanye is both and both. You know, Kanye would throw bars also too, but he's just such a creative. But also Tyler, the creator, just very, very creative out there type of guys that would just do things that you would never think on a record. Right. Um, here's my question right now. In terms of guys that are out that are positive, I don't know if you're very familiar with this work. One of the guys I think that operate in that space and I think this is a problem that's happened with hip hop and it's sort of some of the problem that we're happening we're having also in um a lot of these social issues that have now become political. There's a guy by the name of NF. You familiar with NF? Mm -mm. Okay, so NF is from Detroit. Uh, I encourage you to look him up. Um, in terms of content-wise, he's clean, meaning that he doesn't curse. He's almost like a clone of Eminem, I would say, in a little bit. His style is very similar. He's also, you know, young white kid from Detroit. But I think he, a guy like him is... He's super talented. I think he's talented than, you know, a good majority of these guys that are out right now. That's my honest opinion. And I feel like even me being able to ask you that and you not know who he is, uh, although he has millions and millions of followers and, and Brooklyn Shemi, he's, he's had platinum records. But I feel like a guy like him and the way that the industry is going, he'll never get recognition because of the color of his skin. Mm. Is that ironic? It's interesting. Yeah. You know, like, obviously Eminem was a huge deal as the f really like the first white rapper where every great 
black rapper after him, or many of them at least were influenced by him and respected him on equal terms with the greatest black rappers. So he really did, he broke the, it sounds crazy to say, but he kind of broke the color barrier for white rappers. Right. And there have been others in the, in the meantime that have really gotten a lot of respect in the world, like Mac Miller. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I don't know going forward, the more and more race conscious that we get in the culture and the more and more anti-whiteness is sort of viewed as cool in the culture will white rappers i mean like if you're a young white rapper now i think it's in some ways it's easier to come up because you've had eminem and and those kind of people before you but in some ways it's harder to come up because if you say one wrong thing you make one misstep people are more going to be waiting to jump on you now than i think they were 10 years ago And it's one of those things also, too, where I think in this particular case, it's sometimes that you'll never get that credit for really being that good because uh, it's just been so such a grab on, like, you know, this is our culture, this is us, this is, a, you know what I mean? So it almost mm-hmm. feels like a person will never even get a chance. It's been bothering me a little bit. I just kind of I kind of want to know what you thought about it. So you were a guest on the, on the Bill Mayer show, and you were there to debate the police brutality. And you even testified in front of, uh, you know, Congress and everything to voice your opinion on slavery and reparations. So take me through that experience, really. I really want to know, like, what that was like. What's it like to be a guest on the, on the Bill Mayer show? Like, tell me what that, tell me what that was like. Well, they put me up in a, a really, really nice hotel. Like, way too nice. <laughs> they treat all their guests the same, and they have people on there that are, like, A-list celebrities. So they treat everyone like an A-list celebrity pretty much by default, which was really cool. Um, besides that, there's actually nothing to say because it was it was during the height of COVID restrictions in, in L.A., and L.A. was extremely, extremely conservative in their... Co- not conservative politically, but, like, risk-averse in their COVID policy, so... We, I couldn't hang out with Bill. We couldn't have a get-together. We couldn't have a party. We couldn't talk. I couldn't talk to anyone. It was masked the whole time. So it was just like straight to business, straight to the show, straight back home. There's really nothing um, I can say about it. But it was, I mean, uh, it was an honor to be on that show. I really like Bill's show. I think he um, he's one of the few voices on the left that really is not afraid to disagree with the trend and you know, says exactly what he feels. And I think that's really important. And that's why he's so recognized. As far as Congress, that was kind of a circus. That was much more, it was way more disorganized than I thought it was. And if you've seen the video of these testimonies, it it doesn't really capture the degree of chaos that was actually in the room. Like it felt like it could almost turn into a riot at any moment. And like, no one would know what to do. Like there wasn't that much security. It was kind of disorganized. It was like, (laughs) like a lot of government functions it's kind of like half baked and like not that tightly organized it's kind of kind of a shit show right so do you feel like your voice was heard that's my question like I, I, you can imagine with the circus is already one thing but then it's almost some like sometimes like you feel like you're talking to you know what's your thought are you going there trying to convince anybody are you are you only saying like listen if i make a few good points as long as this is filmed then I'm going to capture people out there, but I'm not even thinking about, you know, trying to change anybody's mind up there. Yeah, I was trying to communicate 
as succinctly as possible what I actually believed. And I was trying to persuade people. And it's such a hard format because, you know, they, they say they give you five minutes and like an idiot, I actually took that seriously. So I like made sure I could say everything in five minutes. And if you know, you know, like five minutes, you can't even say enough that would go into one op-ed, like a short op-ed. Right. That, that would take like 10 minutes to read. So it's very difficult to communicate anything subtle. But everyone else on the panel went like 10, 15 minutes. And I was like, Jesus, I feel like an idiot. I, I could have taken my time a little, little bit more. But at the end of the day, I went up there. I said what I thought and uh, let the chips fall where they may. Right. My biggest issue has been always with, you know, especially things that got more political, I would say, is that, you know, we have, I, I call them ride factors. So there's a few different ride factors, right? Ride for me means that ride or die things, right? So for political opinions, I couldn't feel like I could ride or die for it. Although I could see how, you know, over this last two years or whatever, as things have gotten crazy, why people definitely feel the way that they feel. But God is my thing like that, you know? So like, if if I'm going to have to ride about or die about an opinion, it's going to be because it's my God opinion. You know what I mean? You understand what I'm saying? Like for my faith for me, that's one thing that we're, we're, we're not going to touch, you know? And I and I grew up, like I said, in, in, you know, in Seattle, Washington, and it was a very politically correct place. And I didn't really know that, you know, here we are in 2022, that a lot of the views that I had when I was working for the YWCA, which was all about empowering women and, and fighting systemic racism, that when I'm arguing with people, you know, at all these workshops and different things like that, I didn't know that my social views would later on become political views. You understand what I mean? So there's a few different things that I can ride or die for. Do you ever get to a point where you feel like, it's just not worth it. You know what I'm saying? It's only politics. This is a very small thing. I don't know how religious you are, not religious you are, whatever, what other thing could be taking you into much more of a space of saying that this means more important to me than than politics right now. I guess politics is important to me. The culture of the country is important to me. The direction of the culture is important to me. So, and, and I do, I feel like if I say it's, it's not worth it to weigh in on something where I think weighing in is, is useful. It's kind of like it leads to a vacuum that just other people step in and push their point of view, right? And it's like, it's a little bit like the argument for why America should, you know, intervene in, in foreign affairs sometimes. It's like, we pull our troops out of there, Russia's going to put their troops in there. China's going to take over, right? If we stop influencing, it's just someone worse is going to come in. So it's not that we want to be doing that. It's that someone's going to do it. So it might as well be us. And I think a lot of times when I'm weighing in on political issues, it's, you know, everyone's going to be weighing in. And I know my perspective is it's often not going to be the dominant perspective. And so I feel if I don't say something, I'm letting, I'm just letting other people dominate the narrative more. And so I want to do my part. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to pick your biggest battles, definitely. So not everything is a, is a ride or die issue for me. Um, not everything is an issue that I'm going to stake my whole reputation on. You have to pick your battles. Last but not least question I would say also to on this is sort of sticky. So my understanding is, I asked you a man of faith, but you, you consider yourself an atheist, right? Were there at, at any point that you were ever a person of faith or anything like that or... 
you know, how did it come come to be about that you would become an atheist? Uh, no, there was no point at which I believed in a literal God. I've done meditation retreats. I've done psychedelics. I felt what you'd probably call spiritual experiences of radical connectedness to all people and uh, radical empathy for all beings. And, and I've had those kind of experiences. I've also had, you know, strange experiences while meditating where my entire body felt like almost like I had taken some drug. It was like tingling and shining head to toe. I've had strange things happen. And I so I tend to believe that people have experienced the strange things they say they experience, whether it's a spiritual experience, a religious experience, and so forth. But I've never mm -hmm. believed in a, in a literal God that can hear my prayers or that is running things from heaven. So I, I never had that belief to begin with, and I never became persuaded with with any particular religion. So I've never I've never developed that belief. Really? So was like in the house you were raised that way, like your family was that way, or? Neither of my parents believed in God, so they didn't raise us to believe, and I never went into any particular belief system on my own. So has there ever been a moment, this is my last question, has there ever been a moment where you hoped that God exists? <laughs> <laughs> um, so at least one you have to think about. So I think it's hard for me to even really entertain seriously the idea that there is a God up there, to even hope for it. I, I'm not sure I can bring myself to hope for it sincerely. On the other hand, I think a lot of the attitude in life that would come with a belief in God, I think is positive. You know, like this idea of being radically grateful for everything that you're given, all of your talents. Like the, the idea of really meditating on your blessings in life, I think is, it's like the healthiest thing an individual can do is to look at everything that's gone well in their life and dwell on it and not really take credit for it understand that you've been given gifts right and to walk through life humbly as a result of that i think is like having that kind of attitude when that comes from religion or belief in god i think is a really beautiful thing so i can't say that i've ever hoped that god is real you know, call me back on my deathbed. I might have a very different attitude, but <laughs> I, I've definitely thought that some of the attitudes that c can come with a belief in God are deeply healthy. Amazing. Amazing. Listen, man, I, I want to tell you, man, I'm definitely a, uh, a, a a big fan of everything I've been exposed to. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm on God's team, but other than that, <laughs> I, I definitely want to tell you, no doubt about it, that, uh, you know, just the, the courage, the amount of courage that it takes to stand up and to fight, even after losing friends and being ridiculed and, and, and fighting for something that you believe. I think that we all share that that is definitely during these times, we don't see a lot, lot. So that's why, you know, people such as yourself, anytime it happens, it's like it's so celebrated, you know, um, from people who, who want to have that courage, but they don't necessarily have it. So I want to wish you, you know, a blessing. You should only go from strength to strength, and uh, you should have only success in every single thing you do. I thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Wow, that was an amazing conversation with Coleman. Uh, definitely one that I think needs to be heard. It needs to be had, you know, this conversation needs to be had a whole lot more. Um, I think, as I was mentioning, and I think he mentioned a little bit also too, 
the way that things are shaped from the media and things on the outside, a lot of people don't even think about their opinions. Do you own your opinion? I think that's homework. I never give out homework. But the question is, that: do you really own your opinion? How much do you honestly sit and think about all the different things that you hold, whether it's your political views, whether it's your views on social justice, whether it's your views on, on God even? How much has a person actually sat and thought about, do I really own my opinion, you know? And am I willing to hear things that don't necessarily line up with what I believe to be true in order to find the truth? You know, I'm a man of discovery. You know, my, my story's been out there. I went, you know, faith seeking and looking. I looked into everything until I found what was right for me. I got away from a lot of people that I was around in order to do that because I wanted to come into who I am and, and to be very, very strong about the things that I believe. So I think it's very, very important for all of us to do it. I think it was a wonderful conversation. I learned some things. Hopefully you learned some things. And for no apparent reason, there's obviously, you know, our custom uh, for me to leave you with a song. So I think the song for this week, uh, what I want to share with you is my newest single, Adored. Uh, please listen to it. And as always, only go from strength to strength and be strengthened. I want to move closer, but I don't control it I know I've been trying the doors and open I know it sounds funny, but really though In the beginning, we really close Now we just cruising up on the coast Don't want to lose you, I really don't My God, I'm working so hard I let my guards down and I'm feeling so far You won't cut me off and I'm ready to grow And I'm ready to know you more Please, I honestly say I'm mature It ain't my decision, it's yours But I will persuade with my arm Cause I'm ready to run to your arms I just want you to know that I wanna go to a place where I find you A place I call home, a place where I'm not alone And maybe I'll grow just a little bit more And I'll be a dog, then I'll be a dog Then I'll be a dog Then I'll be a When I feel your presence, I'm up of the world There isn't much better, but then I fall levels and levels below it Don't know where I'm going, don't know where I'm holding I say I gave up, but I know I didn't It's just my frustration, I'm only human I act like I know what I'm really doing As long as it's you that I'm really choosing I will never give up, no, I wanna do it your way You're the king of the world, only wanna do what you say I know that it's possible to give back my heart to you I just want you to know I really do 
Just wanna do right by you till it's through Please don't ignore me, please just adore me Wanna be closer to you Thank you so much for listening to The Deal with me, Nisim Black. It's a production of the Joshua Network. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Gilad Brownstein. Please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at The Deal with NB. And subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. Please share this with your friends so that they can get this raw and riveting stuff from me, yours truly, God's man.